Good morning. Can you guys? Oh, it is on. Last service, this mic wasn't on, and it was really awkward for like 15 seconds, but we made it through it. We're good this this service. Uh, good morning. Welcome to uh, second service here at MRCC. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm the youth pastor here, and I just wanted to welcome you this morning. Uh, I get to do the announcements, and we have a lot to get through, so we're going to jump right in. If you are in the golden years of your life, and you are 55 or older, uh, I have the event for you. It is today, this afternoon, in Room 105, which is our kids' area. It is our prime timers' lunch. If you are under 55, you can find something else to do today at 12.30. But uh, we just wanted to invite you to that here this morning. Uh, if you have any questions, um, Pastor Dave would be more than happy to answer them for you. But we want to see you here this afternoon. Coming up, not this next weekend, but the weekend after, we have something for guys and gals. Uh, the ladies here will be doing the spring tea on Saturday the 20th, and we wanted to invite you to that as well. Um, I know that there will be tea there because it's called the tea, but I'm assuming that there will be crumpets as well. Um, I've heard that tea and crumpets go well together, so I don't know what a crumpet is, uh, but if you do, it'll be there. Uh, we do need you to register for that. Uh, so if you need to register, it is at mrccnow.org. Also coming up on that weekend is our men's conference. We will be traveling to Pasco, uh, which is a couple hours away. And Pastor Weston has um, just coordinated and done a super good job of coordinating and making it so uh, we're staying in a lodge and it is all of us together, and so that way we can maximize the amount of time that we get to spend together as dudes. I know for a fact that there will be lots of meat there, um, varying types. So if you're a bacon guy, there will be bacon. If you are a uh, steak, red meat person, I'm assuming that that will be there, but we also need a different kind of protein. So there will be eggs as well. Um, I know somebody will probably bring like a head of broccoli just to be that person. Uh, I'm not a broccoli person. Um, I'll eat vegetables, but not broccoli. So uh, maybe I'll bring some Brussels sprouts. I don't know. Also uh, coming up, we're in May. And the fact that we're talking about summer camps is absolutely mind-blowing to me. But we have summer camps coming up in the next couple of months. Kids camp is coming up in June Registration is open right now for that. And then in July is our youth summer camp. Registration will be open on Wednesday. Somebody please tell the youth pastor that he should have had registration open now. Um, if you know him, please send him a text message to do that. Um, yeah, Pastor Allison's way better at this stuff than I am. Also coming up this summer, uh, we do have a missions trip coming up. It is to Costa Rica and it is in August. Uh, if you would like to apply to be on the team for that, there are applications in the foyer. If you have any questions or anything like that, please uh, don't hesitate to give the church office a call or call Rhonda. Her information is in the packet. If you are considering uh, joining us on this missions trip, uh, I would just say um, schedule to get your passport done now because passports are like 12 weeks out. And we are super, we're going to butt up really close to that. So that's it for the announcements this morning. Pastor Greg is, is here bringing the word. Thank you, Pastor Tyler. And uh, 
Welcome everybody to Second Service. It's great to see you. Welcome to everybody who's joining us online. We're thrilled that you're with us here this morning. Did you guys hear? You know, it's not really strange to think about summer next weekend. Did you check this out? 86 on Saturday, 88 on Sunday, 89 on Monday. That is a glorious Mother's Day weekend uh, coming up. Good stuff. Looking forward to that. Can get my first sunburn of the year, but uh, cool. Cool stuff next week. Summer is coming. We all know it doesn't really get here till August, but next weekend will be uh, outstanding. You know, before we open God's Word together this morning, can I can I just take a moment and and just thank you for so many people who you know over the last week have just gone out of their way to express happy birthday to me. I mean, I I was coming in every morning. There was several cards on my desk. I'm getting text bombed. I'm getting emailed. I get Facebook to death. Um, and there's so many. It's hard to keep up with. But wow, is that touching and humbling. Thank you to so many of you who took the time to express that. Both to me and my wife, our birthdays are a week apart. Kind of in, we were born in the same maternity ward a week apart. That's weird, isn't it? It's a little bit weird. I think aliens were involved or something. But uh, but thank you for those expressions because they are. They're really humbling and moving and encouraging to think that so many of you care uh, about us in that way. So huge thanks for that. Uh, grab your Bible church this morning, if you would, and open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And you will remember what we're doing. We said at the beginning of the year that we're going to take a road trip with Jesus this year. We're going to walk all the way through Luke's gospel together. And we're doing that for a very specific reason. You and I live in the age of the deep fake. <laughs> okay? We are increasingly losing the ability to recognize what is real or what and what isn't real in our media and our TV and just a lot of ways and places. In fact, I, I read this week, did you hear this about there's a the FBI put out a bulletin that criminal gangs are capturing your kids' audio online. They're messing with it with software to make you think they've kidnapped your kids so they can call you up, let you hear your kids' voice and demand ransom. I mean, wow, what is that? That's deep fake is what that is. And Jesus said that there would be a lot of deep fakes about him. A lot of people using his name, claiming his cause, claiming to be in his cause when they really weren't. And the Lord said it wouldn't be hard to tell the difference. All you got to do is pay close attention to the real Jesus. And that's what we're doing this year in Luke's gospel. And so this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36 and down through verse 50. And I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to this Sunday for a while because, friends, this is my favorite gospel story. You, you probably have a personal favorite, one that moves you deeply. This is the one that moves me most, that captures my heart, that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the years go by. So I, I've looked forward to this Sunday for quite a while. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36, down through verse 50. And, and let me begin by asking you a question. Who knows about your failures, about your struggles? Who knows the real you enough to know about your struggles, not just your successes? But the, the things that are hard for you, the hurts you carry and the battles you fight, who, who, if anybody, knows the real you in that way? For many of us, it's very few people, if anyone, who knows that because we're so good at hiding that stuff, because we've gotten so good at covering that stuff up. 
all of us have. You know, I remember some years ago, I was pastoring in northern Idaho, and um, God, in my personal devotional time, was convicting me. He was saying, Greg, remember that you're, you're not just the pastor of the adults, you're also the pastor of the kids, and, and pay attention to those kids. I put them first in my heart, and, and I want you to do that as well. And so I was in this kind of phase where I said, all right, as I go around church on Sunday morning, between services, before services, after services, I'm going to take special care to pay attention to the kids, you know? And if a child greets me, I'm going to get down on their level and greet them and talk with them. I was just feeling God's conviction about doing that. And so on this one particular morning, it was just a couple minutes before service was starting. I was coming up the stairs from the downstairs where the kids' church was. And a little guy, about six years old, on the stairs said, Hi, Pastor Greg. I thought, oh, this is my moment. Everything can wait for this kid. And so I got down on my knee to be at his level and say, hey, good morning, my brother. And when I knelt down, the entire seat of my pants ripped out. <laughs> I was wearing kind of a sport jacket and some slacks, and the whole thing ripped out. I could feel it. He didn't see it. Nobody else saw it. But I knew what had happened. And I stayed in the moment and was with him. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to stand up. Service is about to start. And the whole backside of my pants are ripped out. I thought, oh, what am I going to do? There's no time to change. There's no time to do anything. Can I fool everybody for three services this morning? And so I headed upstairs, and I stood very carefully, and I walked very carefully. And <laughs> when I greeted people, there was no bending over to do anything for the whole morning. And do you know I made it through that entire morning without anybody knowing my pants were completely ripped out and back? My wife thought that was the most awesome thing ever. But here's the thing. See, we're that good at concealing our struggles, aren't we? And that's not always a good thing. Because sometimes when we conceal our struggles expertly, our failures, our wounds, our tough stuff, sometimes when we conceal that really well, we cut ourselves off from something even more precious. We think the most important thing is that nobody knows. But in fact, there's something even more precious than nobody knowing. And we cut ourselves off from it when we're really good at keeping it hidden. I remember when I worked in the emergency room and we would get patients in at times who had suffered severe trauma, who were badly injured, but they were so drunk or so high that they were completely unaware of their injuries and the danger posed by their injuries. And it was really hard to treat them because... The awareness of pain is the key to diagnosis, and they're so far gone, they don't even know their own pain. And it's that kind of thing that we're going to see happening in this passage of Scripture this morning. I said that sometimes when we hide this stuff really well, we cut ourselves off from something. Here's where that comes from. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. In other words, godly sorrow helps us enter into the repentance that heals us. But very often, we get so expert at concealing our struggles that we actually succeed in concealing them from ourselves. And sometimes that's even true of our sins. And this morning in this story, we're going to see that happen to someone. We're also going to see what it looks like 
when we escape that trap. So Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36, here's, here's what the Bible says. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. All right, let's, let's grasp context here. One of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the folks most serious about religion. It didn't always make them right about religion. In fact, it often made them wrong about it. But this guy comes from that background. He's taking God and right and wrong and life and death seriously. That's why he's a Pharisee. And he invites Jesus to his house to have dinner with him, to, to be part of a dinner party. In fact, we're going to see a little later. Now, it's easy for those of us who sort of know the rest of this story already to assume that kind of his motivation at the outset was wrong, but there's no reason to suspect that. Not every Pharisee was two-faced. In fact, one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, we read about in John chapter 3, was pursuing Jesus right from the outset. <laughs> hey, you're the one. Help me grasp what that means. And Joseph of Arimathea was a, was a Pharisee, and yet he was the one who, who gave his tomb to Jesus on that Easter weekend, who opened his tomb so that Jesus could be buried. So there were Pharisees that were on the right track, even though generally that group was off track. This man may or may not have been one of those, but we know that he was one, and he invites Jesus to his house. We know that he was wealthy enough to host large dinner parties. Not everybody is, especially not then. He is. He's Abe. He's got a home large enough. He's got servants. He's got the wherewithal to provide food for people. And we know that on some level, he wanted to know Jesus better. You know, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're not a person of faith yet, but you're curious about Jesus. You want to know more about this guy. Well, Simon, we're going to find out his name is Simon, this Pharisee, he, he feels that. And so he invites Jesus to his house for this dinner party. Well, the party gets started and something unexpected happens. Look at verse 37. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, picture a large dinner table and people would recline on cushions, their feet kind of tucked behind him. She's behind him. At his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. Now, let's pause for a moment and understand that we 21st century people might at first think that's really weird, but in fact, it wasn't in that culture. A, a, a tradition of hospitality was that when you had guests attend your home, you would arrange for their feet to be washed when they arrived. Not hard to understand why you're living in a desert and everybody's wearing leather sandals. So, you know, a little foot washing is a good thing for the, the noses of those of us who are acutely in touch with that sense. And she's doing that for Jesus at the dinner table. Now, notice what the Bible tells us. She was a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. In 
all probability, she was either a serial adulterer or very probably a prostitute. We know that because that euphemism, a woman who lived a sinful life, was common in those days to refer to sexual immorality, to refer in particular to prostitutes. And so it is entirely likely that this woman, whether having been forced into it or having chosen that lifestyle, was walking in that kind of sin. And that's important to grasp. Because, church, we've got to understand, especially in this 21st century, that God, God doesn't see sexual immorality as a victimless crime. God, who knows and understands our sexuality and knows what it does to the inside of us as well as the outside of us, says, hey, sexuality outside of bounds is a harmful thing. It's taking advantage of one another. It's harming you. The scripture is abundantly clear on that point. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he or she who sins sexually sins against his own body. In other words, there are effects that continue and linger when we make the choice, the wrong choice, the bad choice, to give ourselves to sexual immorality. And so what are God's boundaries? Very briefly for sexuality, it's important for us to remember in the culture we live in. First of all, God intends sex to happen with inside of the marriage covenant. It's part of what binds two people together in the marriage covenant. That's what it's meant for. That's what it's intended for. Second of all, the lust that we all sometimes feel is meant to remain within that covenant. We're not meant to be ruled by it. We're not meant to be driven by it. We're not meant to be controlled by it. Lust is not God's will for us outside of the marriage covenant. Third, God condemns homosexuality. Our culture increasingly says it's fine and okay. God says, no, it's a sin like a lot of other things. It is not my will for you, and it's wrong. And finally, there's the whole issue of bestiality and polygamy and all the other stuff that falls under the category of sexual immorality. We don't know which of these things or maybe all of these things that this woman had given herself to, but we know that she was wrestling with those things. And we know that's not God's will for her or us. First Thessalonians chapter 4 puts it this way. It's God's will, Greg, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control his own body, her own body, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, not just giving in to every impulse, like the heathen who don't know God. Well, this woman has crossed those boundaries. And if I can put it this way, she's feeling the burn of those choices. You know, in the moment, it seemed like a good idea, even though she knew God didn't want that for her, she chose it and and she didn't know what the consequences would be. She didn't fully understand how it would affect her heart and mind. But, but she's feeling that now. When I think of her, I think of so many people over the years that I've sat with in my office, weeping and confessing the bad choices they made and the regrets and consequences they're living with and talking about how to heal from those and recover from those and overcome those. I think of a young man named Colton many years ago who made a series of bad choices and contracted AIDS, and he was dying of it. And he would come to my office every couple of weeks, and we would talk and pray together. And he would express his regret, his remorse. I shouldn't have done that. I knew better, but I chose that. This woman is in that place. 
And we know also about her that, that she had some money. She was well off. She brings this alabaster jar of perfume, an expensive piece of uh, a, a jar to contain the perfume. Not something that most homes would be able to afford. But she has the means to have these kinds of things. And she brings that to him. And it's worth noting that sometimes we think that money is all we really need and we can figure out everything else out if we have enough of it. But all of her money couldn't get her out of this moment, out of this feeling, out of this brokenness. She had it, but it wasn't the answer. Instead, she finds herself here weeping openly before Jesus. Let me, let me ask you to feel this moment in this way. What does it take for you to break down and cry brokenly in public? Th there's probably a lot of us who've maybe never done that. There's probably many of us who live in terror of that possibility ever happening, that we would break down as completely as she is in public where other people can see us, people who know about us, people who know us. But she's having that kind of moment. And it touches her deeply. It's affecting her deeply. She is broken in that moment. Sometimes I, I get weepy too, but usually it's over silly stuff. Like I cried at the end of Rocky. Any of the guys with me? You know, at the end of Rocky, when he won't go down, I get misty. I thank you. Thank you very much for being honest. Yeah. Uh, I cried when Cap won't go down at the end of Endgame. He gets up with his broken shield. Yes, I know he's a comic book character. I cried anyway, all right? I cry when I see that video of that autistic, developmentally disabled Bas high school basketball assistant who gets to play the last game of his senior year when he's never been allowed on the court before and he gets hot and makes five three-pointers in a row and I ball. <laughs> but this is deeper than that. What she feels is not kind of a joyful tears. She's feeling broken tears. And as she feels that, she kneels at Jesus' feet wipes them with her hair, washes them with her tears and with the perfume. Again, it's a hospitality tradition, but we should also note that what she's doing in this moment is placing herself in the position of the lowest servant in the household. You see, in a household with servants, the lowest ranking servant would be given the job of washing feet. It's not hard to understand. Raise your hand if you'd volunteer to be the foot washer. My hands are down. <laughs> But she's placing herself in that role in this moment. This is a moment of great humility. She's not holding anything back. She's not faking anything. She's not trying to hide anything. She is telling the truth about herself in this moment. Jesus did the same thing in John 13 when he knelt before the disciples and washed their feet, placing himself in the role of a servant and saying to us that we should do the same with each other. This woman is doing that in this place. And she's embracing it willingly and publicly. What she's really doing, friends, is she's humbling herself. And can I just say this to you? God will never turn away from a moment like this in your life. Your brokenness is always welcome in his heart. Here's what Psalm 51 tells us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You will never turn away from. Know this. 
that that part of you is always welcome in his heart. And part of the problem with concealing our brokenness from ourselves is that we never take it to him. But this woman is doing that. And then, then comes the turn in the story. Then comes the reason this story is in your Bible. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This guy who invited Jesus to his house is revealing in this moment that he isn't really a believer yet. If this man were a prophet, he would handle this situation differently. Oh, I'm checking him out, and now I see that he doesn't meet my expectations for a godly man. If he did, he would behave differently in this moment. This guy is not a believer. He's not following Jesus. He's just checking him out like lots of people are. Sort of playing the field and riding the fence kind of curious about Jesus, but still thinking that they can get to God without believing in him. But friends, he himself said that's impossible. Here's Jesus's own words, John chapter 14, verse 6. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, no woman comes to the Father except through me. And Simon's not there yet. Simon is still being led by his expectations instead of who Jesus is. And that's where this gets deep. That's where this takes a deep turn. You see, church, Simon is thinking, the Pharisee is thinking that godliness is something we do for God. And that's true in one sense, but it's false in a more important sense. It's true in the sense that out of thanksgiving for his love and grace, we choose to live by his rules. And that that's a beautiful thing when we do that. That's the, the good side of, of this what we do for God business. You know, in our house, my wife really loathes laundry. Okay, it's not her thing at all. And so years ago, I said, you know what, honey, I'm going to take care of that in our house. I'm going to do that for you. I don't want you to ever have to do laundry, so I'm going to do all the laundry. Now, in the same way, she does 90% of the cooking, although she's largely motivated by how badly I cook as much as serving me in it. But, but yeah, we do these. Now, if either of those things, though, became just a duty, a responsibility, then they would cease to be the blessing to the relationship that they're meant to be. But, but because they're not duties, because they're things we each willingly choose over and over again, they matter. So in that sense... Godliness is what we do for God. But in a larger sense, and we have to grasp this, church, godliness is what God does for us. Let me say that again. Righteousness is what God does for us. You see, Simon is sitting back thinking, hey, I know God's got rights and wrongs, and he's revealed those to us. This woman has crossed those boundaries. And since she's crossed those boundaries, God's law, then she's one of the bad guys. She's on the wrong side of the story. But that's not what the Bible says is the purpose of God's commandments. In fact, over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, here's what the Bible says. What then was the purpose of the law, God's commandments, his definition of right and wrong? What was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions 
until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Now, what that means is this. God added the law so that we would know that we've broken his definition of right and wrong. The purpose of the law is to make that us aware of that. And once the law does that and causes us to go to Jesus, it has achieved its primary purpose. Now, after that, we choose to obey the law because of a Thanksgiving response, like I do laundry and Rhonda does cooking. But its first purpose is to make us aware. Remember I talked about the ER? People come in not knowing how badly they're injured. The law was there so you and I would know the truth about our sinfulness, our brokenness. And Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, when he says, I would not have known what sin was except for the law. You know, I grew up in an unchurched home. I didn't become a believer until I was a young adult. In, and there were so many things I didn't know were wrong from God's perspective. And a lot of things I didn't know were right from his perspective. The law is there so that we would know that. Galatians goes on to say, verse chapter 3, verse 24, and so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified faith. In other words, the purpose of God's definition of right and wrong is so that I would understand my wrong and then go to Jesus to be my Savior. This woman gets that. This Pharisee doesn't. And Jesus knows it. And he calls attention to that moment very specifically. Look at verse 40. So Jesus steps into the moment and says, Simon, there's where we learned his name. Simon, I have something to tell you. <laughs> Can I just say this is what it's like when you're a disciple of Christ. He taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, Greg, we need to talk. There's some stuff out of whack. I want to talk to you. I want to parent you. I want to father you. I want to teach you. This is one of those moments. Simon, I have something to tell you. And then Jesus tells him, verses 41 and 42, and, and he uses a story because the Lord is always reaching for your heart as well as your mind. He wants to touch me in what I feel as well as what I think. And so he tells a story to Simon. He says, hey, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? That's an important question. Simon thinks that religion is about what we do for God, how we meet his standards, whether we're on the right side, the good guys, or the bad guys. Jesus knows that faith is before anything else about loving God and loving one another. That that's the point. That if we do all the stuff right and never love, we've missed the point. And so Jesus says, now which of them will love him more? Wow, is that a huge deal. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, that above all else, God wants us to love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Because love is patient, because love is kind, because it, it waits, it perseveres, it overlooks. And Jesus knows that's the point of faith. Simon doesn't know it yet. So Jesus says, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, he heard the story, he got it, and he says, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You can hear his tone in the I suppose. <laughs> kind of don't like where this is leading, but I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And then Jesus says, 
you have judged correctly. One of them will love him more. And he says, Simon, that's the point. You know, a lot of us in this day and age are being deep faked into thinking that the Christians are the ones on the right side of the issues and the bad guys are the ones on the wrong side of the issues. God says the Christians are the ones who love God and love one another as they figure out the issues. And that's why Jesus affirms this woman. Listen to what he says. He's not being harsh to Simon, but he is challenging him. Look at verse 44. Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet. Really? That would have been a big faux pas. Hospitality in a wealthy man's home. There should have been a servant to wash feet. There wasn't. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, you know, kiss on both cheeks like we see in some cultures. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, another hospitality tradition, kind of get your hair in order after being out in the sun and the weather. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. There's a little ironic challenge there. Jesus is saying to Simon, see, here's the thing. You think she's the only one who needs to be forgiven. You've lost touch with your own brokenness. You've stopped living in the place of confession and repentance. She's still in it. And because she is, she's way ahead of you. You think you're the guy who's got it right. In fact, she is because she's experiencing my grace in her brokenness. She's in touch with the truth about herself. And as a consequence, she loves me. Whereas you just invite me to dinner so you can check me out. It's a powerful moment. And in the same way, God looks into my life and yours and he says, hey, what's going on in there? Uh, do you get real with me? Do you practice confession and repentance? Do you do that? We should never lose that habit. Jesus told a marvelous story about two guys who go to church. One guy goes in and says, God, I got all the right opinions. I'm on the right side of the issues. I got my act together. It's good to be your people. Another guy comes in and goes, oh, God, I'm just barely hanging on. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I am struggling. There's brokenness in my heart. I need your grace. God said, that man went home justified. The other man did not. The other man did not. And the same kind of thing is happening here in this moment. You see, church, we love much when we realize how much grace we've been given. When we're so in touch with our brokenness that we receive from the Savior his grace, resulting in our ability to love God and to love one another. That's what's happening in this moment. Let, let me finish with a story. There's a wonderful cultural tradition in Japan. You you may be aware of it. There's a word for it. It's called kintsukori. And what kintsukori is, is a value, a tradition among pottery makers in Japan. And the tradition works like this. A brand new bowl is valuable. Yes, it has a certain price, vase, whatever it is, it'll be sold and, and receives a certain you know, a price for it. But more valuable by far, according to kintsukori, is a bowl that was somehow broken and then repaired. 
a broken and repaired bull actually fetches a far higher price among aficionados of pottery making. So much so that the tradition of kintsukori has grown to the point where when the pot or vase is put back together, the, the potter uses solid gold to seal up the cracks. And at the end, the vase is worth more than it was new, plus the gold by far because it's a picture of something having been redeemed. In the same way, God comes into our lives to patch up our cracks, to put us back together. And he uses the gold of his grace. And our rejoicing is greater in the bowl that's renewed, restored, redeemed than the one that was never broken. So this morning, God wants you to know that he has gold to put together your brokenness and you receive it when you're honest with him about your brokenness. I wonder if you've done that. I wonder if you are doing that. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? God, we thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, we thank you for this tender moment when you give hope to those of us who know we're broken, when you challenge those of us who think we aren't. God, help us to understand that in that, you're teaching us to love you. It's when we receive your grace. It's when we know your forgiveness that we learn to love. And so we ask as we go from here today that you would help us to be open with you in our brokenness. That we might be made whole. That we might learn how to love. We pray for that and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Kinsukori, I just love it. What a picture of the gospel. Now, may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God and tell someone you love him. Have a great afternoon.